Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Matt, I'm looking at the 10-year yield here, 1.71%. There's a lot of folks out there saying, hey, by year-end, you need to, th- need to be thinking about a 2% 10-year, maybe even a 2.25% 10-year. Mm. Uh, and you know, the question is, you know, in the space, in the face of what we're seeing is there's tremendous fiscal stimulus. Looks like it's coming down the pipe with uh, President Biden's plan. Really, where do rates go? Let's check in with Laird Landman. He's a co-director for fixed income at TCW, a little firm out in Los Angeles with about $235 billion with a B in assets under management. Laird, thanks so much for joining us here. Love to get your thoughts here. We had a few weeks ago, the 10-year spike to 1.6%. That got people's attention. We've drifted higher here. What's your view of kind of where you think uh, these treasury rates go? Well, certainly, uh, we seem to be biased to, to going higher here. Um, but I do think we're reaching levels as we approach 2%, where it's probably a reasonable point to be thinking about getting exposure uh, to rates. If you think about the amount of debt that we're going to be issuing, which is, I think, pretty topical today as we talk about you know, how this plan will be financed, uh, the Biden uh, spending plan, um, there certainly will be, I think, uh, a, a desire to keep rates low uh, in the U.S. because you're going to have to pay for this over many, many years. So if there's that demand out there, what's been happening in the seven-year auctions this month and last month? Well, I don't think there's a demand uh, for the rates. You're seeing foreign uh, investors pull back. I think the demand right now is being filled uh, by the central banks. I, what I was suggesting was that I do think that rates will hit a point uh, around 2%, maybe a little bit above that, where you're going to be want to want to get exposure to them. Because over the long term, if you believe our central bank, if you believe they're not going to overreact uh, to short-term spikes uh, in inflation numbers, uh, and that's an if, um, then I think you probably look at the long term, and those will be pretty good long-term valuations. Do you, do you believe them? Do I believe them? <laughs> uh, uh, I think that they're going to have a real real difficult time reversing this policy. I mean, we're living today in a world that is the mirror image of 2018. There's excessive excess reserves around, and we're seeing that reflected in repo rates and short-term rates. I think $105 billion roughly was parked today uh, in the Fed's reverse repo program at earning a whopping 0%. Um, and in 2018, you might remember when they tried to taper, uh, what you had was the exact opposite. You had excess reserves going down. You had repo rates spiking uh, in the marketplace. So I think they have a great deal of, of, of difficulty, uh, despite their rhetoric, in reversing this policy. So I do tend to believe that they're going to they're keep uh, QE going, uh, and they're probably going to keep rates low, even if you do see uh, the supply um, channel issues, which are going to be exacerbated by the Biden plan, most likely, uh, raise CPI numbers in the short term. All right, Laird, Laird, if you do think um, the Fed wants to keep rates lower for longer, where are you and your teams at TCW spending your time now looking for opportunities? Well, we've been short on the duration side uh, in terms of our interest rate exposure for quite a while. Um, We've been gradually, as rates have gone up, cost averaging our durations higher, which is part of our our fundamental value-based philosophy. So 
if you, if, you, if you don't like something at 1%, when it gets to 2%, you might like it a little bit more. Um, likewise, uh, the Federal Reserve is generating what I would describe as a bit of a free lunch in the uh, forward market for mortgages, the TBA market. Uh, so TCW has found great value there. Uh, you're picking up anywhere from 70 to 100 basis points of additional yield uh, by rolling TBAs uh, right now. And that's really generated by, the, that arbitrage is generated by the, the Federal Reserve's desire to continue to buy mortgages uh, over time. So we saw this in QE1, we saw it in QE2, uh, and so why not in QE wherever we are today uh, continue to take that free lunch that they're providing. Does QE continue on forever? <laughs> well, I don't think it continues on forever, but I think that the central bank, as I said, is going to have a great deal of trouble. Uh, you know, I think about the ship in the Suez Canal in terms of trying to turn around. Uh, I think they're going to have a, have a lot of trouble freeing this barge uh, from the sand uh, and turning it around. So I think that this is going to exist for quite a while. The Fed believes that the lessons that they learned from the past programs is they didn't go big enough for long enough. So I think you know, if you believe that that was their conclusion, um, you have to believe that uh, this is going to continue into next year. So I think for the foreseeable future, this is one of the most attractive trades out there. Hey, Laird, let me about 30 seconds here. Love to get your thoughts on credit quality as you look out across the vast portfolio of uh, Trust Company of the West. Are we seeing cracks in credit quality? It doesn't appear to be. No, I think in this environment where the markets are wide open and you, you can bring as many SPACs as you want and issue equity, um, I think it's hard to see the cracks developing. There's certainly the foundation for those cracks to develop is occurring uh, with the over-leveraging that's, that's going on. But, uh, you know, our, 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 our corporate team is describing this as right now we're in the dash for trash phase. So everyone's just trying to buy as much yield as they can and, and ignore credit quality. And so this is a time when prudent investors want to start being becoming a little bit, a little bit careful. All right. Great insight from you, Laird. And I hope we can get you back on the program again because it's been wonderful talking to you. Laird Landman is the co-director for Fixed Income at the Trust Company of the West at TCW. Uh, I would say a famed name in terms of fixed income. So it's great to hear from him, Paul. Yeah. When you go out to Los Angeles to visit investors, as I did for uh, close to 30 years, Capital Group and TCW are your anchor meetings. <laughs> Those are the ones you got to see. Absolutely cool. Then. Uh, then we get to talk to him. Now let's bring in Nathan Sheets. He is the chief economist and head of macro research for PGM Fixed Income. They have basically a trillion dollars under management, but he also served as the undersecretary of the U.S. Treasury for International Affairs under President Obama. So basically, um, he has the chops to talk uh, this Biden spending plan. Nathan, thanks so much for joining us. What do you think about the $2.25 trillion plan? Is it enough? Well, I, uh, I think it is a significant step forward. What's clear is that the country has a very substantial infrastructure by, uh, deficit that uh, over uh, the last, let's say, 10 or 15 years, there's been broad agreement amongst Republicans and Democrats that we needed to do more on infrastructure, but they just weren't able to find the formula to get it done. And it looks like that, uh, that Joe Biden, notwithstanding his very narrow majorities uh, in Congress, is finding a formula. 
and uh, putting forward a significant uh, package. Whether it goes all the way to addressing our infrastructure needs, I doubt it, but it's certainly a significant step forward. So 2.25 trillion, we've, we've heard numbers that were even higher than that, but again, this seems to be a number that maybe can get some support here, Nathan. What is this a fiscal stimulus of this magnitude? What does it mean for your economic outlook? So I think an important uh, point to bear in mind is that unlike the stimulus that was passed earlier this year, the $1.9 trillion, this $2.25 trillion is likely to be phased quite evenly over uh, a number of years. The estimates I've heard is uh, up, to, up to eight years. So it's a more gradual kind of uh, effect on the demand side. Now, if a program like this works, it will have a little bit of lift on demand, but it should also help uh, make the supply side of the economy more efficient and could, uh, could have uh, some uh, imprint in terms of raising potential growth and uh, the economy's capacity to be able to uh, produce. So it is an eight-year plan. $620 billion goes to transportation, $650 billion for uh, clean water, high-speed broadband, things that make your life easier at home or safer, uh, acceptably safe. $580 billion for American manufacturing, of which $180 billion uh, is said to be the biggest non-defense research and development program on record and $400 billion to go for more care to the elderly and the disabled. What's next? What's left to do, Nathan? Well, my sense is that there will be likely another package that the administration is going to put forward that is going to be more focused on uh, uh, domestic uh, spending, more social kind of policy and I think there we're likely to see uh, a focus on education, on child care, and other, uh, other kinds of uh, spending, perhaps health care as well, that the uh, administration will view as important steps in investing in people and helping to make the uh, population uh, more productive. So I think that, that is, that's the next, uh, the next chapter in what Biden's likely to be announcing. All right, Nathan, somebody's got to pay for all these spending programs, as Matt just laid out. Talk to us about the, the tax uh, policy or the tax uh, potential changes in tax policy of the Biden administration. Well, I think the tax side of this is likely to be extremely controversial. Uh, first of all, uh, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans have made clear that they will not vote for uh, any tax increases. So to the extent that the tax increases are included, and I think they will be, it means the Democrats are going to have to do it on their own and uh, via reconciliation. Now, I think that within the Democratic Party, a uh, increase in the corporate tax rate from 21%. Maybe they won't get all the way to 28%, but maybe 26, 27% is something that uh, Democrats will uh, will sign on to. I Nathan, think later, yep. Nathan, as someone who worked in government, why can't they just try to shut loopholes and get rid of deductions. I mean, everybody says the answer is lawyers and lobbyists. Why not go after that and try and get more money out of, you know, what we already should be paying? 
I think that there are, broadly speaking, two ways to do that. And I think that uh, uh, various proposals from the Biden administration are likely to pursue both of them. One is to improve the quality of enforcement of our existing tax laws. So are people dodging the expectations of what's already on the books? And they're allocating, they will allocate likely, substantial sums uh, to support uh, the IRS in its, in its enforcement efforts. The second is to address some of these loopholes that are perceived as unfair. And I think that we will see them uh, take those steps. And those are also measures that will be quite popular amongst Democrats and, frankly, amongst some Republicans as well. Right. Hey, Nathan, thanks so much uh, for joining us here. We really appreciate your thoughts. Nathan Sheets, chief economist at PGM Fixed Income based in Newark, New Jersey, giving us his thoughts on what's likely to be a $2.25 trillion fiscal stimulus plan to be announced today uh, by President uh, Biden. uh, Focusing on infrastructure is going to be the big issue, Matt. It's not just simply cash into individuals' pockets to deal with a pandemic. This is something that is a longer-term, forward-thinking pandemic uh, or fiscal stimulus aimed at infrastructure. I, this morning in our Bloomberg pantry here in the office, I picked up a, a package of Shocks Bio Cannabis Power brand granola bars. Now, nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I haven't eaten them yet. Uh, but... Lord. They don't have actual THC in them. I looked oh, okay. at the back, and they're not really— It's um, not Amsterdam. You're in Berlin, not Amsterdam. That's right. I'm in Berlin. It's not legal here. I mean, cops turn the other way if you're smoking a joint in the park, I've heard. But in New York, <laughs> soon you will be able to, I guess, smoke a joint in the park and get cannabis-powered granola bars that really have THC in them. Keisha Kluke joins us, New York correspondent for Bloomberg Government out of Albany, because— the governor has just signed the weed bill. Keisha? Yes, yes, it's, a, it's official. Uh, pot is coming to New York State. We're going to be the uh, second largest market in the nation for legal marijuana. All right, Keisha, what's the, I'm sure there was an economic argument. We're Bloomberg here. We think uh, money, we think markets. What's the economic argument for legalizing marijuana at the state level? Yeah, and, and of course the, the argument is, is intertwined with a whole bunch of things, you know, um, criminal justice issues as well. Yeah. Um, but this is looking to bring in about $350 million a year once it's fully rolled out in just tax revenue for the state. And then on top of that, um, the, the total amount is $4.2 billion in sales is the projection once it's fully, ro- uh, fully rolled out, as well as tens of thousands of jobs. So I was recently chatting with a uh, credit trader here on the Bloomberg Terminal, who estimates about 40% of his adult friends smoke weed or, you know, eat gummies (laughs) or whatever. Do you really think, Keisha, that that many people use THC products? Yeah, yes, I think so. I mean, we already have medical marijuana in the state, and this legislation expands the medical marijuana program, and it also allows for home grow. Um, and then it has this other side to it, which is the, the recreational side. And I think there's been a lot of studies showing people from New York State going to the states surrounding us. Uh, you know, uh, Massachusetts is very popular to get these products. So now we're keeping the money for ourselves, or we will once it's rolled out. <laughs> so... What's the sense of timing, Keisha? I'm, I'm here in New Jersey, and, and, the, and New Jersey legalized um, 
marijuana months ago, but I don't think it's even available yet. I'm just not sure of the timing here. Do we have any sense of when we're going to see, you know, smoke shops and edible cafes, uh, you know, on Broadway? Um, I mean, a lot's going to re- depend on the regulations. They still have to set up the, the Office of Cannabis and a cannabis board to talk about licensing and figure out how many uh, dispensaries will be allowed, where they would be located. Um, but lawmakers, of course, New York is very competitive, especially with New Jersey. And they're saying we can walk in uh, and chew gum at the same time. Let's have it up by next year. So they're hoping to have the first licenses out by at some point in 2022. Although, of course, again, that depends on on how fast they get these uh, regulations in place. So what about farming? I mean, I assume that we're not getting all this stuff from Humboldt County on the other side of the country. Um, it's not being flown in from Jamaica. Are they going <laughs> to be big weed farms um, in western New York? Um, that uh, could be a potential. Um, the legislation provides for... Um, aid to help farmers start up businesses. I spoke to the Cannabis Growers Association in the state. They're really excited. A lot of farms already have hemp farming and uh, produce CBD products. So they're already in a position to not only plant these uh, these weed plants, uh, but also, you know, get them out the door and, and get them to processing plants or processing them themselves so that they can get them to distributors. Keisha, how much, what kind of support did this have up in Albany? Was it bipartisan support? Was it, you know, along party lines? How broad is the support for this? Well, it's been a long time in the making. Um, I think one lawmaker has been pushing it for eight years. <laughs> so um, over the years, it's, it's gained some support. And the final deal did end up passing in the state legislature very late last night, uh, largely along party lines, although there were some Democrats who sided um, with the Republicans against the bill. Um, and then their concerns were, you know, operating machinery under the influence at work, um, issues related to driving and traffic safety and there's a lot that still needs driving to be too worked slow out. this is yeah yeah exactly and and also you know how can you tell whether or not someone is under the influence um immediately while driving did they smoke you know days before was it right before was it while they were driving um so there there's going to be a lot of these details that'll work out this is just the basic framework for the the legislation all right, Keisha, thank you so much. We appreciate that, Keisha uh, Kluke for Bloomberg, uh, giving us her sense here of the law that just signed into or signed into law legalizing uh, marijuana in the state of New York. That's big for the industry. I saw a story cross the terminal earlier about Pfizer's vaccine, uh, Paul, which says yep. that Teens who take it, and I guess 12 to 15 is the age range here, it was 100% effective yeah. in a final stage trial. That's a big number. This is huge, uh, you know, Matt, because I've been saying, you know, I'm all, I'm all psyched. I got my first shot last weekend. I'm going to get mine, the second one in a few weeks. I'm, you know, and, and vaccinations here, thankfully, are ramping up. But the big, big issue for me is getting kids fully back into school next fall 
full after-school activities, full athletics, back to You've had normal. enough of those kids. You want them gone from 7 o'clock in the morning exactly. and not coming home until 9 p.m. Exactly right. And uh, none of this virtual, none of this, uh, you know, I understand why we're doing it, obviously, and, and, and many districts have done a great job. But let's get the kids back to school. And, and it appears when you start to see some of this uh, data coming out from some of these pharmaceutical companies, Matt, that, um, you know, it's more and more likely every day that we're going to get there. You know what would be great is if uh, you could get your kids into the Goldman Sachs analyst training program. Because <laughs> exactly. then you'd never see them again, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I did that back in the day. And, um, you know, what was different there, you know, I was doing 80, 90, 100 hour weeks. Uh, and, but what was different then is we were all together in the office. We had that sense of camaraderie. Um, and, but it's really, I can see how it could be really difficult here uh, with this whole virtual thing. You're stuck in your apartment somewhere and you're grinding it out and you don't yeah. have the support of your fellow, you know, analysts that are also going through it. So, yeah. I can see what's going on there for those folks. That's a, that's a good point. It, it, I want to get just to get back to the vaccines. I'm getting more and more terrified about AstraZeneca. I know we talked about it a lot and we've yep. decided, you know, we'll take any shot they give us because we're good citizens because, you know, we want to be yep. uh, participants in, in the healthy global economy. But Germany yesterday said, all right, you know what? No one under 60 gets the AstraZeneca shot. Previously, they said no one over 65. So the window's getting smaller and smaller. They found 31 cases of blood clots in nine cases leading to deaths. Mm. Um, yep. and, and some uh, were people who were only 20 years old. You don't want to yep. walk into, you know, a doctor's office in your 20s to get a vaccine that you think is going to, you know, make you not get COVID and then die of an embolism. That's like... That's not very, good. very. All right, let's uncool. go to the expert. Let's bring in an expert, Matt. Sam Fazelli. he's a senior pharmaceutical analyst. He's also head of research for Bloomberg Intelligence in Europe. And Sam knows all about this stuff. He's got a PhD in something that I think is somewhat related. Sam, let's start with the AstraZeneca. What do we know? There's so much misinformation or just, I guess, cross currents of information out there. What's your sense of this AstraZeneca uh, vaccination? Yeah, hi, Paul. So I think I would call it cross-currents. That was a good phrase they used there, misinformation or, or, or confusing information. So I, what I'd like to do is to run with the, the one uh, country that has been very clear about the numbers, etc., they've come out with, and that's the Paul Ehrlich Institute in Germany. They're now talking about 31 cases temporarily associated with the vaccination dose. And then when you start looking at those numbers now, 31 cases over about two months of vaccinating out of 2.7 million doses, that calculates to something in the region of a 68 or 70 roughly um, uh, cases per annum per million. And that is higher than any other estimate that I've seen for the natural uh, number of cases here. So, so we're now in a realm that, that, that a serious institution has talked about numbers that they have adjudicated and they think are, might be related. I think everyone needs to take it seriously. Look, the, I, I get what you're saying, and I don't play the lotto because I don't think there's any chance that I would win. But at the same time, if I'm in my 20s, I want my chances of dying from a blood clot temporally related to a vaccine to be zero, you know, to be none. I, I don't. I don't care if 2.7 million people got it and we're fine. I don't want to be the one person that gets a blood clot and dies. And if there's any causation, I think it's a hard sell, Sam. 
Uh, you're right. Unfortunately, people don't get vaccinated just for themselves. Um, the reason vaccines work is that it, be cre- it creates a community of vaccinated people, which then makes it very difficult for the virus to, to, uh, to pass around, which is what some people talk about, this wall of immunity that we put up against the virus. That's when you see much more than the sum of the individuals who are protected. Now, I understand that you can't go and sell that to a 20-year-old, but frankly, if the only vaccine available, which is not the case, but if the only vaccine available was AstraZeneca, I would say they absolutely have to get it because there's just no other option. And, um, and in fact, the case counts, you know, some of them are likely to have been people who would have had it anyway. So really still need to be studied and, and understood why it's related. Um, and I mean, let me give you another thing, Matt. What if in four months time, three months time, as Johnson & Johnson's rolled out, you get the same signal there. Then what do you do? Or what if... Uh, Pfizer-BioNTech, in three months' time or two months' time, you see a rare case of stuff going on in there. I mean, I'm not expecting anything, but I'm saying, what if? We have to make choices, and this has to be one of them. Sam, stepping back, I, I know you're you're based in France. Uh, you spend uh, a lot of time in the UK. Give us our audience here in the US a sense of why has the vaccination rollout been so challenging in the European Union in particular? Yeah, so it's all so far. It's all about not having had the doses to do the job, um, and, and I mean, let's not forget that, that France has got about twelve percent of its population now vaccinated with at least one dose. I mean, that that's now it's starting to become respectable, right? Okay. The, the the point is though that when you did your deals late, when you spent, and this is the European Union that I am blaming, nobody else, right? Not the countries. They kind of abdicated to the EU because that's what they're supposed to be the, uh, the point of the European Union. When they did these deals and negotiated for every single cent and did the deals extra number of months later, when they did not invest in manufacturing like the UK government did, like the US government did, and gave these companies billions of dollars, then you pay a price. And unfortunately, this is the price. All right, Sam, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your perspective here. Sam Fazelli, he's a senior pharmaceutical analyst, folks. He's one of the best in the city of London covering the European big pharmaceutical companies. Also, he manages the research department in Europe for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's got a lot of experience in this stuff. He's been very helpful to us uh, over these past 12 months as we tried to get a sense of what this pandemic is about, what this virus is about, and now over the last several months about these vaccines and the rollout of these vaccines and the efficacy of these vaccines. So good numbers out of the UK, good numbers out of the US, and some improving numbers out of the European Union as they try to catch up. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.